Yeah. So since, I mean, since we last spoke, a lot has changed, right? I think that was probably like about a year ago, like this time, maybe, um, probably actually like right on the 12 month mark. Actually, um, yeah, it might be right. I'm going to double check that. That yeah. would be really spooky, but yeah, I think you might be right. Like mate, like almost like to the week, maybe kind of deal. <laughs> um, I mean, a, a lot has changed, right? I mean, like, especially within our, our business, but you know, even like more profoundly, maybe just in like the broader market, which is why I thought, um, you know, we can have a pretty interesting conversation today. Um, I mean, the markets have continued to, you know, public and private have continued to deteriorate. Um, and, you know, in, in, in those last 12 months, like you've seen a lot of businesses, you know, in our space, unfortunately, fold um, and, and others uh, struggle to raise capital or, you know, have to kind of make the switch to, to profitability and maybe forego a little bit of growth, um, you know, as, as a consequence of that. So, um you know, a, a really crazy time to be in direct to consumer and, and, and maybe CPG even more broadly. Um, but for, for Mad Rabbit, you know, in the last year, um, we have been really focused on specifically uh, channel expansion as well as product line expansion. Um, and so uh, 2022 was kind of the year of, of the product launch for us. So um, anybody who's followed our business saw us launch probably five or six products, you know, that year. Um, and then 2023 has been, been really all about um, retail expansion for us. So we just recently um, announced a GNC partnership, um, which was well over a thousand doors. Um, and then have, have a few other um, irons in the fire on the retail side of things as well. Um, our numbing cream became our best seller, I think like eight weeks after we launched it, um, which it wasn't a surprise, but it did happen certainly a lot more quickly than we thought. So um, you know, that, that tattoo bomb product that, that Mad Rabbit was launched on, um, still sell a lot of it, right? But it is no longer, you know, sort of our true number one product these days. So um, the complexion of the business looks entirely different, right? We've done a lot of hiring and stuff too, and um, different website, a lot of bundles and, and stuff that's kind of, that's changed. So it's been quite the year and it's almost scary how quickly it goes by. <laughs> so uh, since we last spoke, can you just highlight any of the major changes uh, that have happened in the business structurally, uh, financially, and the same with the products? Anything that's changed since we last spoke to now, kind of key moments over the year? Yeah, I think um, so. Mad, Mad Rabbit specifically is, is kind of an interesting, um, you know, part of the marketplace because, like, the, we always say, like, the value prop of, of the brand actually like becomes stronger the more products that we launch, um, and that's like been reflected in our in our LTV and our revenue more broadly because like if you think about like how tattooing works right like it's it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a journey and, and like you have tattoos obviously so you'll kind of appreciate this but um we now have products within like three different pillars like that we, that we call it so there's pre-care um which is like our numbing cream um there's po- like post-care which is like our soothing gel you know sort of that like immediate sort of healing period which is like the soothing gel um and the the unscented gentle bar soap um and then you have maintenance or, or daily care and so you know, a year ago when we spoke, um, we didn't have a numbing cream. We didn't have the bar soaps. So we didn't really have anything really in pre or post care besides the soothing gel, which was our second product. So um, as, as we like kind of launched those products, as I alluded to, is 2022 being really a focus. Um, the, the brand value prop has, has only gotten stronger because the more products that we have, the more sense it actually makes, right? Like now you can go to Mad Rabbit and uh, two years ago, you know, when we had like one or two products, there wasn't really much you could do with Mad Rabbit, frankly. Like you could go and try the tattoo balm and like, you know, maybe you liked it. But now when you come to Mad Rabbit and you're getting a tattoo, 
you know, you can come to us and get numbing cream and you can come back and get the soothing gel and then you can come back and get the SPF and then you can go back and get the lotion. And so um, the, the sort of like, there's like a, effectively like a synergy that's kind of occurring um, from, from an LTV perspective, like a unit economic kind of, you know, customer level value that Rabbit can provide um, because there is just like so much white space kind of in this, in this sector where, um, you know, like we launched that numbing cream, like it just like immediately goes berserk. Right. And it's like, that's good for the business, you know, but it's also indicative of the value that you're bringing to the consumer. Right. And so um, I think as far as the like, call outs go, like that's definitely like the biggest thing that's happened in those, in those last 12 months from like a fundamental perspective on the, on the, on the actual business itself um, is just continuing to strengthen the value prop to the community because frankly, I mean, they help us do it too. Right. Like we talked about that last time a little bit, like a lot of our product development kind of just comes from what we hear from, from our customers. And um, you know, we've been really, really, encouraged to be able to kind of continue to execute on that. So you've recently just announced that you raised a series A funding round, which is really exciting. Can you can you um give us the story of the funding so far up until the point where you raised the series A? Yeah, so <clears throat> we did our seed round um about geez, I guess like 18 months now. It was like the, the summer of 21, maybe. Um, and so that was like right when Salam Oliver and I like quit our full-time jobs and like went all in on Mad Rabbit. Um, and so that was like a $2 million seed round. Um, and then, yeah, so Series A, it'll be, it's about a $10 million round. And so our, our lifetime funding um, is about $12 million. And so um, that's of equity too, right? Because I mean, there's obviously like some, some, some that component to it as well. But um it was it was certainly um, you know a tough environment to to do it in and um, it was it was a really well, obviously you know get into it more and more but um, I think you know what's kind of really exciting about this news that we just got to announce is you know is is that tattoos are I think a little bit insulated kind of you know compared to like the, the broader you know macro economy and so like like Mad Rabbit sits at this like really fascinating intersection of like beauty so like beauty is like notoriously resilient right in in, in like economic contractions. Um, like there's, I think they call it like the lipstick index. It's like kind of like a basket of, you know, how willing people are to spend on beauty and, and no matter like how like crappy the economy gets, I guess, like people are usually just want to look good. And so, uh, Mad Rabbit, you know, sits at like, there, there's one, you know, thing working in our favor is, is just the sort of, you know, relative resilience of beauty, but then also, um, tattooing is just getting more and more popular. Right. So when you kind of combine those two things together, although we find ourselves in this, like, you know, probably the worst economic climate, like since you know, certainly since 08 or certainly since like 2015, like call it like since 2008, right? Like this, the shittiest fundraising environment ever, basically. Um, I think, you know, there's a couple of things that are, are working in our favor um, and that kind of helped us um, get the round done. You know, in, in addition to a lot of like really supportive, um, you know, inside investors as well. We had a, a lot of the round come from, from outsiders as well, but um, yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack. So happy to dive in. However, to me, a convertible yeah. is a car without a roof. What, what what does that mean to you? So so there's um there's a couple of different like equity vehicles that you can use to to raise capital, right? Like you can do a price round, which is when you issue like the actual like preferred stock. Um, so like generally, like when you see somebody announce like a Series A financing or a Series B or a Series Seed, um, that would involve the issuance of an actual class of, of preferred stock. Um, so that's why they call it Series A, right? Because it's really it's literally called Series A preferred equity basically. Um, and so like the different series have different rights or, um, you know, liquidation preferences or, you know, they sit in different spots in the capital stack. Um, a convertible 
there's there's really two kinds. So number one is like the, like the safe uh, simple agreement for future equity SAFE. Um, that's like what Y Combinator made really popular. Um, it's an incredibly simple document. Um, like you can get you can make one in like a page, and like that's like what you see people do a lot of like seed rounds on. Um, and so like call like if you were like raising your your pre seed round, like you might raise like a five million dollar pre money capped safe. Right. And so um, what that means basically is that you don't really want to value the company right now, but you will put a cap on that valuation for like what the investors will convert in and in the next round of preferred. Um, so like if I invested in your company at a five million dollar safe cap um, and then you go out and you raised your seed round after that at like a ten million dollar valuation, my shares would convert into that seed round at a $5 million valuation. And thus I would basically instantly get a 50% discount. Um, so you can either do a safe, which is like really quick and dirty. Um, you know, I mean like you should use lawyers, but like you can get away with probably not depending on your circumstances. Um, but then the other one is convertible note. You can either do like, like actual like cash interest or like phantom interest where like, like a convertible equity interest um, where like if you have a convertible note and it's debt, right? So it's convertible debt that will convert into equity. Um, at the next qualified equity financing, which would be a Series A or a Series B, um, and so basically, it's just a note that like stays as debt, um, and then it turns into equity once you have like a new a new round um, that kind of like where those shares are, are issued. To sum it all up, it's basically just like when you don't want to value your company on that day and issue like shares that have like a literal price, um, you can just basically put together a convertible, um, whether it's a safe or, or a convert, an actual convertible note. Um, and that, that just kind of allows you to have a little bit more flexibility around the valuation. And it sounds like it sounds like maybe you you leverage that to get investors in, like you said, because was your trajectory always going to be a Series A, B, C? And because you knew that, you were able to say, like you said, invest now, and that's going to be beneficial when we raise our next yeah, round. Yeah, frankly, um, frankly, like the pitch actually came together like almost to a T. Honestly, like I told investors. A year and a half a year ago, um, like, hey, like, if you if you believe this these projections and like the potential and, and, and like what I'm talking about with Mad Rabbit, and you invest in this one, um, you know, in 12 months we should be here, and it was it should be looking pretty good. And to be honest with you, like, it literally came in exactly how we described it, uh, minus like two percent. So like, we pitched them, we pitch, like I, I we would pitch them like, hey, like we're gonna do the Series A at this valuation. Um, and we missed that valuation by like a couple million dollars. So like it, it was pretty much exactly like how we, how we wanted it to, how we wanted it to achieve out, which was like probably pretty lucky, but also like semi-calculated, I suppose. Makes you look hopefully, good, right? Surely, surely that's got to be good bonus points for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, especially like in an environment now where like there's, um, you know, pretty, pretty gnarly like multiple contraction and you're just seeing valuations get absolutely crushed right so like a year ago we were like hey like we're going to reach this valuation um not knowing what was going to happen in the market right and so um being able to kind of execute on on the vision and, and, and um you know gain the confidence of um the capital markets was certainly validating i believe before we get into the weeds on this which i'm very much looking forward to doing um for any other people like myself who are maybe not as financially literate um or maybe even business literate, let's just break down why you might do a Series A round and what benefits that brings to the business. So, yeah, I would say 
it, it kind of depends on your path, right? Um, you know, not not everybody like wants to do the sort of venture capital route, and like especially like recently, that's gotten like very popularized, like the whole idea of bootstrapping and profitability, because um, you know now that's kind of like what's in demand in the market, right? Like a year and a half ago, if you were growing, it didn't really matter how much money you were losing or how you were operating your business. Um, you know, generally speaking, you could just outraise all of your like operational inefficiencies because the capital was there for the growth. Um, that has changed, obviously. So um, we like we continued on our path, right? Like we we just so firmly believe like how large this business can get. Um, and like when you're when you're when you're running, when you're operating the business like the way that we do today, like equity financing, frankly, is like really your only option. Um, like we wouldn't like just like be able to finance the whole business with like bank, like not even debt. I mean, it just wouldn't work. Like they just, a lender wouldn't like lend to you without some sort of like equity cushion or like some sort of like cap table that has, you know, equity holders that, you know, will kind of like shield, basically will finance the company. Right. So like, um, not, I'm not saying you can't get creative with like your financing routes, right? Like a lot of people do a lot of crazy stuff, like whether it's SBA loans or MCAs or, or, or BMPLs, like there's a lot that you can do on like sort of the, the debt side. Um, we chose to do the series a, uh, because we have a lot of, uh, channel expansion coming up. Right. And so like, for instance, like the, probably like the biggest focus, um, is like the, this, what we call the pro channel. Okay. And so like the pro channel, um, is to us, like all the tattoo parlors in the United States. I actually like to call them tattoo salons now, because I think it makes it a little bit more parallel to hair salons and gives people a little bit more of like a comp, I guess. Um, and so you know, that, that channel is going to require investment. Right. And so like, what we want to do is like, you know, we want to build camaraderie with the artists, you know, have them come to events. We want to, you know, build them cool mad rabbit displays that we, that we give to them. We want to have them try products for free. We want to do all this stuff that costs money. Right. And so we think that by investing in, um, in, like in the, the pro channel is really just like one example, but we think by like investing, um, into our, into our ecosystem and, and, and bringing, you know, value to a community and to uh, an industry that's like been very like underappreciated from like a capital allocation perspective. Um, we think that'll just, you know, be worth it in the long run. And so we, we elected to um, continue to raise our, our next round of preferred, um, which closed, you know, a little bit ago, but um, it's already, it's already clearly the right choice, honestly, in my opinion. Just out of interest. I imagine that you came into this very confident that it was going to happen. It's not sort of just like a, a one-time event that you build up to and it's a yes or a no. It's sort of a compounding lead up of positive signals that you're going to get the money. But did you have a backup if for some reason it took a long, uh, you know, or you didn't get a deal <clears throat> you wanted or it was going to take another two years? Is there? Did you have like a series, not series B, an option B for the business to, to sort of mothball yeah. and, and, and survive? So yeah, it's a great, it's a great question, right? Because I think like what you're seeing a lot of right now is like, you know, struggling consumer brands that say, "Hey, I'm going to go raise my next round of financing," um, and if they don't pull it off, they're just dead, right? And so like it's it's extremely important not to like bet the ranch to say like, especially like in this kind of like dry environment, like you can't be like, "Oh, I'm just going to raise my next round and I'll be fine." Like that's like. So that's like going to get you in so much trouble, right? So like, I would say our, our, um, our plan B would have been to just like reduce burn, you know, to a point where like, which you would sacrifice growth, right? But like, 
we we know like we know the levers that we can pull within our business right and so like we we are fairly confident on like being able to extend runway uh you know one way or the other for for one reason or another and so um we also have like a lot of existing relationships with um the investors right like the, the the group that led the Lucas Brand Equity led the Series A, um, and they invested um, a small check into our round previously, um, and so like they're like an existing relationship, right? And so like I would say probably the f- like you know the three or four other like candidates to like lead the round like we're also existing relationships, and um, you honestly like you just have you just have conversation with them, you have a dialogue, and it's like hey like you know six months ago or a year ago maybe we were talking to somebody be like hey like what what would it take for you to want to write a check and lead our series a round and, they, and they'll they tell you right and, they, and then if you get to that point um you know hopefully it happens it's, it's no it's by no means guaranteed um but you can kind of like you can basically like decide like whether or not you think you can raise it right and if you think you can raise it then you should depending on your circumstance like go and try um but like i certainly like wouldn't advise just like cold turkey like being like to the moon and like gonna go raise the next round like no matter what because like that like definitely could backfire in your face but um to to answer the question i think like we raised the money at a time when the three of us were confident that we would be able to raise the money you know despite the despite the backdrop um and if we weren't able to uh, we had a plan to to become um not reliant on, on outside capital what what does what does leading the round mean? Can you embellish that? And why would you choose one yeah. person over yeah, another? So so the lead of a of any sort of um, preferred fi- or of any financing round really is is just the largest investor who helps set set the terms, right? So um, like I'll I'll use ours for example, like Lucas Brand Equity um, is a New York based group, right? And so they wrote the biggest check, they wrote the term sheet, right? And so a term sheet um, is a sheet of terms for a deal, right? And so like, it's the price, it's, you know, are they taking board seats? Uh, is there a liquidation preference? Like, does the preferred stock get dividends? Um, you know, just like a lot of like deal talk basically. Um, and so what you do is like, you come to terms with the lead investor. Um, and if the lead investor doesn't take the entire financing round, then you syndicate the rest of the round, right? So you find other investors to fill it up. So let's say you're raising a million dollars and your lead investor is like, hey, I will invest, you know, I'll invest $750,000 of that. We're going to do it at a $4 million valuation or whatever. Um, And then, you know, a lot of times like they'll help you fill it out. But if they don't, then you just have to go pitch, you know, however many other investors for the last 250K. Um, And so the the lead investor um generally speaking is is primarily responsible for the diligence as well um you know definitely in like 2021 and 2020 maybe um and even maybe eh, 2021 2020 like people like co-investors so people who like follow on and like don't lead rounds like they would literally just jump in around just because of who was leading it like if they if you saw like Andreessen Horowitz like leading around, people would just be like, I don't even care what's going on. Like just just take my money. Like I don't need to ask any questions. I don't need to meet him. Just write the check in because I know that Andreessen has done the, which you know, whether or not they did for a lot of that stuff, who knows? But like I assume that Andreessen has done the diligence, has done the pricing, has has looked under the hood and knows that everything's good. Um, and so they'll usually take a board seat as well, right? So like whoever whoever leads the round, um, 
represents that series of stock, right? So like if, if I'm the biggest investor of series A stock, I hold the most series A stock. And so I should be on the board of the company representing the interests of the company, but also defending the series A stock, right? So um, that's why you'll normally see like a director come out of those um, sort of preferred rounds. And it's usually like a partner or like an operating partner from like one of the VC or PE funds um, that wrote that wrote the term sheet and, and the lead check. Slightly off topic, but um, from my limited exposure to VCs, which isn't huge, but like you said there, you see them on LinkedIn and they're often non-execs or directors at a number of companies. And I always think to myself, what role do they actually perform? Because there's that saying of jack of all trades, master of none. Do they actually yeah. add day-to-day value into the business? I mean, what, what I'm struggling to understand is you guys are in the business every day operating and you're proficient professionals in the areas that you right. do that. So for someone to come in and sort of helicopter view the whole business, what what do they actually do in terms of being able to steer the ship of the business? Or do they just keep an eye like a maybe a slightly um, over-engaged teacher? <laughs> Um, no, it's a good question, and you know, I, I I can answer from my own experience. But I, like this is a this is an interesting question that I think a lot of people would have a lot of different answers to. Um, I would say investors primarily, right? Like, what is their like primary purpose? It's for money, honestly. Like a lot of like you know investors like are helpful and try to be helpful, um, but at the end of the day, like it's it's for the, their capital partners, right, in the business, and so like the capital is their primary value add. Um, but other than that. I mean, like our, our investors are really great at just working their networks, right? And so whether that, you know, comes in shape of introducing us to, um, you know, like potential celebrities for deals, for, for endorsement deals and stuff, or distribution deals, um, or like even hiring, you know, like I've, I've had investors introduce us to potential hires, you know, if we're looking for a salesperson or something, um, you know, a lot of times you can kind of just shoot out a note to your, your investors. And, um, you know, we have a probably like eight or 10, maybe institutional investors at this point. And so, like, if you have like a, a really important ask, um, you ask like eight of those people, like, that's a big reach, right? Because like they're like they they all have like their own networks, right? And so, um, I think there's a sort of compounding effect from that standpoint. Um, but I would say like you know beyond the capital, uh, like the, just like the networks of these people has probably been their like second most valuable um, input. And then like also, I mean, at the board level, right? Just like the guidance that like you might want or like. They have their old older other portfolio companies, right? So like they can see like what's working or what directions are seeming to be fruitful or not fruitful. Um, and so you get a little bit of like perspective value as well. So I'd say like money, network, and perspective is probably the three biggest reasons that um we would ever partner with somebody. And the person like that. that's like allocated to you um to look after that, are they mainly just like a messenger? Is that just more like a point of contact for you? Like a, if there's a delegate from that company that sort of engages with you on a weekly or monthly basis, yeah, I mean, we talked. Um, I talked to uh, we we talked to them a lot. Um, like I text like all of them like all the time, <laughs> um, which like you know I don't know if like everybody does that or not, but um, yeah, it's usually like either like a partner or a principal or, or somebody. Um, different funds are different, right? Like we have like a couple funds that are smaller, and it's just like you know a couple people. Um, and then we have like bigger funds that, um, you know, it's a little bit more structured and there's like scheduled check-ins and, and reporting and stuff. So, um, it's, it's, it's kind of all over the place, honestly, it just matters on like the personal relationship, um, with, with, with the investor. 
and just just to wrap up the series a bit before we get into some due diligence uh questioning was there any, was there ever any alternatives for you did you even consider any alternative funding routes um consider yes uh were any of them probably feasible maybe um but i think you know we were really excited to get partners involved in the business that like had sort of that retail um or retail slash wholesale expertise um and so like like part of what you're doing right like when you're raising the money is like it, it it truly matters like who it comes from i mean like maybe less like now than it used to but like we we were born on the internet right like i've never i've never ran a a, a wholesale retail target walmart you know consumer business before um and when we understand that like you know the management team at matter Rabbit understands um that like we need people that are involved that have that expertise or have at least seen it um and so i think we were looking at the series a honestly as a as a, as a good opportunity to get some people involved that would help Mad Rabbit kind of crosses this inflection point that we're at, right? Like we've been around, we've been around for kind of a while now, right? Like, um, like since 2019. So we've been, we've been at this for a hot sec. Um, and just now are, are like these like retail partnerships kind of starting to like domino, if you will. Um, and so like, for lack of a better term, like we really just don't want to fuck that up. Right. And so like, if you can like get enough people kind of like around the table and, and helping, helping guide you, um, then that, that's, that's a huge plus. Um, I will say, like, we still enjoy this for some godforsaken reason. We still enjoy this, like, first mover advantage where, like, there's there's been some competition pop up, I guess, but still nothing crazy. Um, and so we're we're still kind of of the mindset that like we wanna we wanna gain market share and continue the growth. We wanna continue to grow the business, right? I mean, we're certainly doing it in like a much more disciplined way, I would say, um, after you know, kind of this whole market correction. Um, but we're not you know, planning on like not growing, right? Like I, I wouldn't like, I wouldn't want to like stop growth. Like, you know, you can do it in a good, in a, in a more efficient way um, if, if, if you so choose, but like growth for growth's sake, like certainly is like out of style. Um, like if it wasn't before, like it is now. Um, but I do think like growing, growing businesses is, is still the, you know, the backbone of like the American economy, right? Like startups are like still meant to like grow and innovate and, and, and provide value where value hasn't been provided. Um, so I would say like, again, like you can get creative, um, you know, financing any kind of business, but, um, this was, this was the path that we kind of knew that we were going to be on from probably since, you know, two years ago. So just going back to, you said about the, uh, analogy of the company that raised and people would just raise off the back of that, not knowing what that company invested in just because of the yeah. provenance of the investment. Isn't that like the craziest thing ever? Like in hindsight, like there was so much money just sloshing around and like all of a sudden, like it actually like, like FTX, think about FTX. You, you know about that, right? I heard about it, but go on, just give us a quick overview. Well, just like, like FTX, like, you know, like the guys, the guy was like a billionaire the company was worth like $32 billion. And like all of a sudden it just like was a fraud and like they raised, you know, insane amounts of money. And like, there's literally stories. I think it was Sequoia. I think it was Sequoia. Um, like, like Dan Bakeman Freed was like literally playing, I think it was like League of Legends, like while like the investors are basically pitching him. Right. So it's like, it's like in what world, I mean, like in the 2021 world of, of you know, all that easing that was going on, like in that world, I guess, but like that's crazy. Like in hindsight, I mean, hindsight's 2020 totally, but like the dude's like playing League of Legends while like the 
you know, most notable like VC fund is like begging him to like put money into his company. Like, <laughs> and then it turns out that it's a fraud. So like, but like the, all the people who are like, holy shit, Sequoia is like, you know, the one of the best, you know, funds probably ever. I don't need to do diligence because those guys are so badass that I can just follow them into the investment and, you know, it should be fine. And a lot, and a lot of those, um, a lot of those rounds and companies, like if you got asked to do, to do diligence, they would just say no. Like if they were like, Hey, like we want to put some corporate governance in place. They would just be like, no, I don't need to do that because I have 16 investors with a term sheet lined up ready to hand me a quarter billion dollar check. Like, um, so it was, really crazy in, in hindsight honestly like just how little um the investor community actually like tried honestly and i and i, and I felt it i honestly felt it just like mad rabbit at a way lower scale than anything like that um but like the series a that we just did took way longer and was way sweatier than than any anything that we ever did before um because people are just looking closer and and for, i mean over the summer like july august like Everyone was just sitting on their hands. Like nobody even wanted to deploy capital because all the all the all the buyers, right? So if if Mad Rabbit and all the brands are the are the supply and private equity is the demand, the buying, they were just sitting there waiting to see how low the prices were gonna get. See how desperate all these founders get, right? Because they're all about to go out of business. So I'm just gonna wait. I'll just wait until I can buy them out of bankruptcy. Like why why am I gonna buy um you know company XYZ for a $20 million valuation when if I wait six months, they're going to run out of money and I can buy it for a $2 million valuation kind of thing. Um, so lot, just like a lot of different like kind of like dynamics have changed over the last like 12 or 18 months in, in terms of capital markets and um, probably for better, I suppose. Like it, shit was getting like a little bit crazy. Like we probably should have known with like the whole NFT thing that like we were getting ahead of ourselves, I guess. But for another time, I suppose. On our on our previous episode, I don't know if you remember, but we spoke briefly about uh, Wink Wine. Um, they just raised oh, yeah. public with something like four million on their balance sheet. I think it was. A, mm-hmm. I'm probably misquoting that. Now we obviously know what transpired. We had Jay on the podcast as well recently. It hasn't dropped yet. Yeah. Um, we we sort of looked into that, and I think what just happened is they got bought out of bankruptcy, like you just said. Um, so maybe you foreshadowed a little bit what, what was going on. Cause I remember you were sort of your ears pricked up very, very quickly on Twitter about how they were able yeah. to go IPO with that kind of, uh, a balance sheet. So that was interesting. Is there any more information that you have on that? On the, I actually, um, <clears throat> I got lunch with Jay, but that's pretty much the crux of it. Right. I mean, they just went public at a really shitty time. It seems like, um, and like, I don't know, it's, a t- it's kind of a tough business, honestly. I mean. Those margins, I mean, like just being like, and this goes for any sort of like beverage business, like you're seeing a lot, a lot of beverage businesses are like shutting down their online sales. Like Liquid Death, I don't think like sells online anymore. They might sell on Amazon, but it's just so hard. Like you're just shipping, it's so heavy, you're shipping liquid, like it's so heavy. Um, I had, a, I started a, a, like a RTD, DTC uh, beverage brand in college and like you'd ship it and it's like, damn, like. It's like killing me. Like you just get, it's, it's like, it's so hard to do. And like, and kind of like the, you know, the post iOS 14 world too, like, you know, your ad costs are going up, like shipping's going up anyways. Well, I guess containers are like cheap, like freight's probably cheaper, but like shipping rates go up, you know, 7% each year with Amazon or UPS or whatever. So um, retail, retail is cool now again for the moment. But yeah, I think, I think, 
wink or whatever just probably was like a pretty bad timing thing unfortunately yeah right back on track then so do due diligence who who often does that nowadays because i i did hear that sometimes it's actually the company itself that will do its own due diligence um and and provide that but i'm guessing that wasn't the case for you guys um so the way that it has the way that typically works um in, in my experience right it's like you launch a fundraise um you either have your own network like we do um you put together some initial materials right whether it's a pitch deck um people actually really like notion docs i think i actually made a notion doc for the last one uh, people like notion docs people like pitch decks um and you know investors will usually ask upfront for like a couple things like they want they, they always want to see a cap table they always want to see a pitch deck and they always want to see like projections right and so um you can like basically put together a data room with like those three things and like you'll you'll be pretty set for like the preliminary rounds right um but then like you go and you do your pitch and like you you let them know like what's up like why they should invest and like why you know you think it's a good deal because the thing about like putting out a deal out in the market right is like if you if you want to get a deal done you have to put out a deal that's going to get done right like you can't like you couldn't go like mad rabbit couldn't go out to market for series a and be like we want to raise it a billion dollar pre-money valuation right like it just never happened like that's obviously dramatic but like step number one is like knowing the condition of the market like knowing where the market's at and like that's good that comes just through talking to investors right and it's like hey like what are you seeing like what like what prices do you like like that kind of thing so um you know you gotta you gotta put a deal out that's competitive right because you're trying to attract you're competing for capital right and so if you're if your deal is a good deal you will win that capital um and then like what if you can if you can do that and you can get past you know call it like the stage one or whatever stage two with investors um then you jump into diligence basically which depending it can, it's it really depends on who it is but it can take months it can take weeks it can take days um and so we i, I oliver and i really led that uh, effort and so like they'll they'll like they'll send you like, any potential investor will send you like a laundry list of like everything they want to see um, and then like you just spend days like putting it all together, right? So like, you know, some investors are, um, you know, really, really concerned with like cohort uh, behavior and data. Um, other investors are really, really concerned about, um, you know, how big is this market? And so they might just say to you like, hey, prove to me that this market is big enough for this company to hit these goals. Like, so you just spend a bunch of time like doing research and making models that kind of prove like, hey, you know, if... 120 million people in america have a tattoo which is like more more people have tattoos than iphones i read which i need to find that source again because that's like the craziest thing i've ever heard um like you just kind of have to like convince them right like they'll, they'll they'll give you hey like these are the 10 reasons that like i don't think i would like want to invest in this company um like prove me wrong and then if you can prove them wrong usually if they're reasonable and they like the space and they like you they'll invest um and so like that's that's kind of like what I'll call like the financial due diligence side of things. Um, but there's also a lot of legal due diligence, um, which is like way more boring and like we don't need to talk about it too much. But like, you know, that's when you're actually like negotiating a deal and you're like, what, like they want to know, like what sort of obligations does the company have? Like, have you signed any leases? Like, am I, like if I invest in the company, like am I on the hook for, you know, a lease for the next 10 years? Like, did you sign like a huge lease or like, are you getting sued right now? Like, is there any risk for the company having been like in some sort of lawsuit? Um, are your like 
taxes all square. Like they'll, they'll ask for your tax returns a lot of times. So there's kind of like this like financial due diligence and there's also like a legal due diligence. So like once the financial due diligence clears and like the, the investor thinks like this is worth, you know, investing into, um, then they'll kind of go down and do like a bunch of box checks and say, okay, like if I'm going to invest in this company, are they in good standing? Um, are they basically like not committing fraud um, in, in a lot of ways? Um, or are they like, is my capital, if I don't think my capital is at risk from a financial perspective, is it at risk from a legal perspective? It's kind of like what they're trying to like, in a lot of cases, um, you know, figure out. Uh, so it's a lot of work. I mean, that's like, especially like, like, like figure you pitch, let's just say you pitch a hundred investors for, for a round. Let's say 70 of them want to do diligence and 70 of them send you like a 10, a 10 item list. That's 700 things that you have to like reply to, right? A lot of them are the same. So like it kind of becomes like off the shelf, like, cause they're asking for a lot of the same stuff. Um, and then like once one person asks it for, from you, you have it ready already and you just can kind of like send it and stuff. But, um, there is a lot of, a lot of work and it's not only like tedious work, um, in some ways, but it's also like brain teaser work in other ways, right? Like if they ask you like, how do you like, how can you possibly figure that like your LTV is going to like trend this way based on like these, you know, trends in the, the broader market? Like how can you assume that this in your model is like going to work or whatever? And then it's like, okay, well like then you actually have to like come back like qualitatively and think about kind of like what, what I talked to before, which is like, I think Mad Rabbit, um, you know, as we launch more products, like LTV will go up just because we're providing more value in different areas of the journey. And so like, it, it becomes like an exercise between like qualitative as well as quantitative um, thinking, which can be exhausting for me, at least in my experience. It's, it sounds like a long process, but also it sounds like one worth doing regardless of whether you have or are going to get investment because you just so deeply audit your business. And if you're still yeah. confident at the end of that process, um, then nothing, I guess, can really stop you because you've looked at every single area. Was there any outliers, anything that people asked that were particularly quirky that made you think and go, why are you asking this? Or um, how do I even work this out? Yeah, so we've done like enough of these diligence things at this point where like there's been some pretty wild questions, honestly. Like I, I like definitely like would never like name anybody here, but like just questions that you're like, like what, what we had an investor one time ask us like, what's your plan to get to a $0 CAC? Um, and I was kind of like, I was like, I, I, like, I don't know. I don't really have a plan for that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. Like, I don't like if you have one, I would love to hear it, but just like, like maybe I don't understand it, but like to me, that one didn't make sense. Um, but for the most part, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a fairly uniform thing, right? Like they're, they're really concerned with like LTV to CAC, which like I've tweeted about this, but I, I think it's a bit of a myth. Um, they're really concerned with market size. They're really concerned with like just sort of traction to date. Um, and it, 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 like the, the things that matter change from, from round to round, right? Like when you're raising a seed round, it's like, have they shown any traction? Is the team cool, good, talented, skilled, smart, whatever. Um, and is the market big, right? And then like series A is like, okay, like how are, how are the unit economics trending? Like, is there any, are there levers to be had here? Like, can, can we continue to improve this? Um, you know, has the company demonstrated the ability to continue to grow, you know, beyond certain thresholds. Like a lot of people get stuck at 10 million or they get stuck at 20 million. Um, and then once you get to like series B, which is probably like, and I've never, I haven't gotten to a series B, but I just, this is just, you know, conjecture, I suppose. Um, 
it's it's way more about like what are the operating ratios like how like how, where when i put one dollar in how much comes out and when does it come out and where does it come out of kind of thing um and then you know all the way down to like ipos and like that's what i spent a lot of my time doing um like immediately post college was doing ipos and like once you're at like the public stage like that's like i mean you're like talking about banks that are like multiple like maybe like a dozen banks right like running your process for you to go to the public markets and so that's like a, you have like an army of people doing it for you at that point so and that and my point being like everything matters at that point like if you're going public every single little detail matters like the founders you know marital history could be a factor in that kind of thing so um it, it just it just it progresses over time and so i can basically speak you know in my own experience you know which with which firsthand is you know through series a at this point with mad rabbit and then also on the public side of things um it's just it becomes slowly more and more and more granular sort of like the more money you're raising basically because the more money you're raising the more it matters and the more it matters the more people ask questions typically i've seen behind the curtain of um companies that i've worked with in the uk where they might be doing you know tens of millions in revenue and uh when we've when we've parachuted into their business and had a look at they 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 haven't even got things like google analytics set up correctly let alone any of the other (laughs) stuff so if a company like that tried to raise would they just have an absolute nightmare just because they have no data or or like at least they haven't been tracking it i i I, ltv to cac if i imagine that particular client if i was to ask their e-commerce manager i actually imagine that he would say i'm not sure what that means so like I'm just trying to establish like a really yeah. fast growing hyper growth company because they just hit it right. If they were then right. like, right, we're going to raise, but had had no operational or any of the um, data tools that would help to kind of answer some of these questions in play at that time, is it just going to be a real tough slog for them to get investment? Or do sometimes would, like people raise just on your balance sheet? You know, I would, if I... It's a tough question to answer. <clears throat> I would say probably, yeah. Um, not that like, I mean, it depends who you raise from, right? Like there might be like some investor that has, you know, $50 million to burn and like is like, oh, this is incredible traction. I believe in it. They'll figure it out and cuts the check. Um, so it's impossible to generalize the answer to that. I would, I would say, I could probably say pretty confidently that like the better you know your numbers, the better off you are in the fundraising process. Um, so that, that's, that doesn't mean it's impossible for like people who aren't potentially, uh, you know, ingrained in that way in their business to, to raise capital. Like, I mean, dude, like if you went from like a million dollars one year to like $50 million the next year, cause Walmart's just crushing. And like, somebody asks you how, like, how is Walmart doing? And you're just like, I don't know. It's just working. Like, I, like sometimes the, sometimes the numbers speak for themselves, right? Like you might not even need to do that. But, um, generally speaking, like it's, it's like, it's like anything, right? Like I'm sure like you're. You know your your experiences on like kind of like just describing Google Analytics and stuff. It's like if you were pitching business and a client was like asking you things about Google Analytics or like whatever you were setting up for them, like the more you can answer, the better position you're probably in to win that business, right? Um, so it's the same kind of thing, right? And I think at the early stages, it can give investors um, a certain level of confidence in the management team, especially if it's like a younger management team. Um, like it it it, it helps you f- probably find a little bit of peace. Um, if you think like your 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 managers um, know what's going on at some level, at least, does it does it always feel like a show uh, when you're raising? And what I mean by that is like you put the razzmatazz in, you put the the pitch deck in, and um, 
presumably that gets done by a designer and embellished and looks very pretty and pleasing and it's yeah. easy to absorb. And you know, then I, he, go on. I made, I'm, we never, we've never hired a designer for a deck. I like made it and it probably like could have been prettier, I guess. Um, I would, you know, I would say no, like in my experience, like, you know, you kind of, you, you immediately imagine like you walk into a, into a boardroom looking office and like, put like hand out the powerpoints that you're standing up there and you're like pitching like it's like it's not like it's not ironically it's not like shark tank like at all like it's way more it's so conversational like especially like you know i would say probably like four or five investors that like we really wanted to lead the round and you know had we been able to agree to terms with them you know maybe we would have maybe they would have um but it's like it's kind of like you just hit them up you're like hey like thinking about you know raising raising another round here like do you want to take a look under the hood and it's like especially like if they've been following you for a while. Um, I would say like most of the investors that like came into this round, like I, like we didn't have to be like mad rabbit is the leading tattoo aftercare brand. Like they already know what it is, right? Like they're just kind of watching and like hoping that like we hit certain thresholds or certain KPIs or certain metrics that like would, you know, would make them want to invest. Um, but at the same time, like if you do come across like a brand new investor who you like really want in the round, like, yeah, there's certainly like the, the part where the, they kind of sit back and just like listen to you kind of give the spiel and they're like, okay, kind of thing. Um, but like in my, in my personal experience, like I would actually love to hear like other people's experience. It's not like stand up at the front of the room and like pitch, 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 pitch. It's like, it's like, it's conversational, um, slightly casual, I guess. Like the, I operate like, ca- like fairly casually just in general, but like not, not nothing like crazy. Like, you know, nobody's like wearing suits, like grilling you you know, at, in, in, a, in, a, in a boardroom or something. So um, it's a little bit different than like probably a lot of people think about it, I would guess. How, how much does it cost to do due diligence and raise a series A? And then where do you allocate that cost on your balance sheet and who ultimately picks up the bill? Are you talking about like from like a legal perspective? Yeah, I guess your time, uh, anyone else's time, anyone else's time involved in it. So sort of from a, from an operational oh, and talent perspective. But that's, then, a, yeah. that's a really good question. Um, I would say it depends on how much you raise, right? And, and how um, how stubborn both sides are, right? So like if you get a term sheet, like term sheets, just like essentially like an LOI. Like it's not even like like you 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 move to like final form, like long form financing documentation like after you agree to a term sheet. And so like, that's like your stock purchase agreement, like your row for co-sale, like your, you know, all the like sort of like corporate documentation has to like be agreed to by, you know, the lead investor. Um, and that can easily cost six figures. I mean, if you're raising like, if you're raising above, like call it 5 million bucks in like a series A, B, like that legally, that'll cost you six figures probably. Um, time wise, I mean, my God, like maybe like all in, like just kind of spitball, like maybe half a million bucks, like between like me and Oliver and Slob's time and legal fees. And, like the company, in my experience, generally pays the um, the investors' legal fees too. So tack that on as well. Um, and like just, you know, opportunity cost could even be a factor there, right? Like, I mean, you're spending so much time like trying to get this round done and like it's distracting. And like people say that and like, it's tr- it's very true, right? Like honestly, like when we were doing this, like I like it's impossible. You can't be as focused on the business as when you're raising as when you're like not. So um, I would, I mean, it's hard to say, but like 
it's it's expensive as shit for sure. Like if you're if you're gonna account like for people's time and legal fees and like all that, like I would say hours probably cost a couple hundred grand, like all in. Yeah. And and there is still the possible outcome of doing it again. I mean, I imagine that if something falls through for whatever reason, then you would have to repeat at least some of that process. Is that right? Yeah. So it kind of depends. Like if you like, yeah, I mean, yeah. Like if you were going to do like, a, like if we were going to do like a series B, like that would all happen all over again. Um, if we had just like wanted to like take more money into the series A, like it, we, we, it's all already kind of done. So um, it, it just kind of, it just kind of depends on like what you want to do. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like it would, it would be like a whole other, like you have to do it every time and like lawyers and we don't, I mean, we are not big enough to be using bankers, but like lawyers and bankers always find their way to get a cut, right? Like they're, they want those fees and, um, they, they'll find a way to get them. And, um, who orders you as in if an investor asks you for a certain piece of information, like you said, you might have to do some quantitative work or qualitative work, but it all comes from you and your team and the people around you. And then who audits that that information is correct? Or is it at this level, at this point, it's sort of just, I trust Drew, I understand his capabilities, I understand the model that he's put together and that's good enough for me. Yeah. It's a really good question. And I think um, I just kind of learned recently the answer to this from at least a couple uh, buy-siders. And so um, basically like half of the diligence that VCs are doing is just to rule out like bullshit. Like I was, I was talking to an investor one time who was like, I was like, Hey, like I'll send you, um, like a download out of a Shopify app that like shows our LTV over time. And he was like, no, I need you to send me, um, like the raw Shopify data. And I was like, okay, like we have a million customers, like it's going to take four days to download. Um, and he was like, yeah, but like, he's like, I like it's, it's, it's not that I don't trust you. Um, but like, I have to like check this box that says like, I went through this raw data and like you didn't fake anything. Whereas like if I just like send in like a CSV or Excel sheet, like I could just like hard code it and like commit fraud basically. Um, so like from from that kind of an audit perspective, um, it's it's on the investor, right? I mean that's what due diligence is in a lot of ways. Um, is just making sure that you're not being lied to. <laughs> um, like I don't know if you saw like Bird, like the scooter app. Did you see that news recently? No, I didn't. What happened there? Like Bird the scooter app, which is like now like a fifty million dollar like penny stock on the public markets, um, they like came out like a month or a couple weeks or a month ago, and we're like, hey, like just so you know, like we like reported revenue wrong for the last like two years, like they just like booked their revenue like incorrectly. Ouch! <laughs> is that nuts? And so like, like. I don't know how that happens as like a public company that you have like actual like requirements for like auditors. Like Bad Rabbit's like never been audited like for, as a, like by like a you know like a, like a third party accounting firm. Um, but dur- like it's up to the investor at this stage. It's so early, right? Like Series A is still so early, and there's I there's been Series A's before that like people will hire auditors and maybe even bankers and all that stuff. Um, but we're not raising enough money to like go and like for the investor to like want the company to go and pay 50 grand to get an audit. Um, so I would say like audit wise, like all like all like those sort of like critical investment KPIs, like it's on the VC to kind of prove that to themselves or to the whatever investor. Um, and then from an accounting perspective, 
it's probably more of a trust thing than anything um because and you can like i mean you should these 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 investors have seen so much shit right like if you're if you're like a private equity investor and you see 20 pitches a day like i'm sure you can kind of start to tell like who's trying to hide stuff right it's like if like if if an investor asks for like our like sometimes they like ask for like hey like send me your last bank statement so i can just like see that like the amount of money that you're telling me you have like isn't a lie and like it's not like a potentially like typical like request um but like i would always do it i'd be like sure yeah i'm not lying to you like look at whatever you want like let me know if you want to invest kind of thing um whereas like maybe somebody who's like a little bit more guarded or like doesn't want to like share as much information like maybe it's a little bit sketchier or something but um i would like anticipate like being audited like in the next round probably like i have friends who have done series a that that needed like a real sort of accounting audit um it wasn't really necessary for us our our, our books are pretty well kept anyways having just been through it all what's your general feel how do you generally feel about the process uh now you're at the end of it and is there anything that you think you could feed back if i was a vc um or just in general that would help us understand what went well what caused friction and what could be improved if you were to do another series a in the future for another business for example yeah so how do i feel about it um i mean like proud of like our team you know to have gotten to the point where like this is like a thing that we can now say that is behind us and that you know gives us um the optionality and the opportunity to continue to pursue um you know the, the heights that we think that the brand can can reach um so proud like tired <laughs> also <laughs> uh, like like slightly like emotionally exhausted um it's a grind i mean like there's no there's no, like no doubt about that it's almost like more of a grind like just like mentally than anything um just because like it's, it's such like a high stakes situation um and then the second part of your question was like can you restate that part yeah I'm just sure like if if you were to just take yourself out of mad rabbit and look at the process you've just been through as a whole and um for both the vc side but also the side with the company raising the money was there anything that you think you know that you'd have liked to have been aware of going into it anything that you think caused abnormal amounts of friction in the deal or anything that you thought actually that went quite well um that you could feed back for anyone else that's maybe looking to do a raise or maybe anyone that's looking yeah. to invest um i would say like we kind of talked about it but like just like the volume of like diligence requests that you can get can get like really high and so like, if you're not like kind of like record keeping like all the stuff that you make like, like, like let's say that somebody like asks me for like a pro forma ltv model and like wants to see like how i think like lifetime value is going to trend over the next 12 24 36 months like if i if i spend four hours doing that and then just like delete it afterwards <laughs> And then like the next VC like asks for it, you know, like that's such a terrible waste of time. And so like, I think like as far as like reducing friction from like running the process from like the self, like the company side, um, just keeping your like shit organized. Like I have like a, it's on my um, computer. It's it's a folder called series A shit. And there's probably 450 files in it of just like random stuff that I like made. But I was like, I don't ever want to have to do that again. So I'm going to save this down for when the next person asks it. You know what? You know um, what you could do with that. You could do a whole Twitter DM me, like, follow, and retweet, and I'll uh, I'll yeah. send you a redacted <laughs> yeah, copy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like I would say, like if you're running a process, like have all your stuff organized. Honestly, is is like the biggest thing. 
hire like good lawyers who like who are good at like sort of expediting the processes because like the last thing you want to do is like like i mean this this is like it's like time kills all deals right and so like if you want to get wrapped up in like legal back and forth um dear that's just deal risk honestly to you so um that like certainly can like help you reduce friction if you have like a solid legal team that um you know is is really focused on getting it over the finish line and then honestly from um from the investor side you know i i understand i think all the things that, that these people tend to do um i think the only thing i wish maybe like they did less of was like asking to do things that like they might have been able to do themselves or understand themselves um because like at the end of the day like we talked about it like the business can you hear me still it looks like you cut out still here it's just the camera's gone but i'll change it carry on oh okay okay um i think yeah i think like you know it's distracting from the business right and like if you're like about to invest in a business um you want the operators like really focused on um running the business and not like just like doing your all your diligence requests so um and but like at the same time like, it's so necessary for them to do all that so it's it's kind of hard to say but i would i would say just like from like streamlining from like a, a operator perspective like organization and like a solid legal team is like it's gonna go like a really long way okay um restructuring the original investment i was just looking at the other camera then restructuring the original investment um but how did that? I mean, is is everyone happy who originally invested? Um, and was any was it, was there any restructuring in 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 the stock that was originally issued? Um, going from your seed round into your Series A. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, like this, like this, like the seed stock and the A stock have to concede or agree or compromise in, in certain in certain ways. Um, nothing crazy in our case at this point. Um, it was actually relatively smooth. Um, but I could definitely like, I definitely understand like why that would like irk some people. Like you have to, you almost have to like raise your current round, like with the next round in mind, because like, if you give up like a bunch of like really crappy terms to like series A, like series B is going to come in and be like, this is a nightmare. Like I'm not doing it. Um, but luckily for our case, it was actually fairly smooth. So now it's done. Now you're through that. What additional work has added to your plate as a CFO? And, um, how are you accounting for that in your day-to-day role? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say like number one is like um, basically like reporting and discipline. Um, like now that there's more money kind of in the air, if you will, or say in the company, um, there's more eyes on the company. Um, and so that's certainly made not, that hasn't exactly made my life easier from like a sort of how, like how many investors are kind of asking me for things all the time. Um, and I actually just hired, um, support on the finance side for the first time. So Joe is like my new VP of finance. Um, and so that's kind of like how we, um, address that. Like, you know, I also do a lot, I do a lot like beyond just like what I'll call like investor relations, but, um, there's just more, it's, it's, it, there's more money involved now. Right. And so it's like, you have to be more disciplined and you have to be more transparent and you have to have better visibility and you have to have better support. Um, and so it just, it kind of like, I think series A for like, for us, like, at least for us, like it's such like a grow up phase, like cool. Like, you know, you did a C round, like you guys were selling tattoo butter. Um, but now it's like, it's like time to grow up, honestly. Cause like now that you've like taken in like this much money, it's like, we need to, you know, get to a point where like we feel really good about a, how are we going to use this, these funds to, continue to grow our brand and bring our community value 
and then B, um, you know, create a, a satisfactory financial outcome for for those investors. Um, and so there's a lot that kind of comes that goes into all that. Is it is it like just a is it like being surrounded by your board and being shouted at, at random cadences to give you things, um, or is it all come through like the lead investor? Is there any infrastructure to like how and when you report and who to? Yeah, like we have like um like like reporting like requirements um as like it's it's actually part of uh, the deal documentation. Like you'll be like required to report. Um, as I've kind of alluded to, I'm like fairly open with our investors. Honestly, like there's investors that I'm more open with and less open with. Like there's a there's a class of investor called a major investor. So like when you're classified as a major investor, you get certain rights that other investors don't get. Um, for us, I think it's if, like you're over like a million dollars invested or something. Um, and so like if if, if you're if you're a major investor, like I'm technically like legally obligated to like be more responsive and transparent to you. Um, and so like it, but like at the same time, like like I, like nobody's ever thrown like a textbook in my face and been like you owe me this, right? Like I just like it's like listen, like if if somebody like wants to know something, like I think it's a reasonable request, and like. Oliver thinks it's a reasonable request. Like we just we we just tell him. I mean, we're not like there's nothing to hide here. Like we want, frankly, we, we want as many eyes as we can on the business because it, it provides perspective and hopefully you know can help us make better decisions. Do you still have full autonomy to deploy capital um, without red tape, or is there now glass ceilings that require pre-authorization from the board? Um, I. I think we're still pretty much the same way, honestly. I mean, I would say like there's definitely like more eyes on it, but it's like you know they still they still trust us and like I don't. There might be like a like yeah I don't I don't think there's anything like really, but like one of the things like I've wanted to do um, honestly is like implement my own controls, right? Like you know now that they're like a like like I've I've been the only person really like running um you know accounting and finance and whatever matter of it. Like I think you know. It, starting like now that we have like his name's Joe, the VP of finance, I forget if I said that, but like I can, he's been really helpful with just from like, a controls perspective. Like, Hey, like if a PO is, you know, greater than this dollar amount, not like Drew can't be the only one to approve it. Like Oliver also needs to approve or, or Joe also needs to approve like double approval type things. Um, but that's coming from within us. Um, just trying to be a little bit more, um, you know, disciplined. And so like a lot of those sorts of controls, but nothing that's like, nothing that like, our investors are like, you know, super like do this or like, I'm going to take my money out kind of thing. <laughs> nice. Okay. And any tools that you found? I know you've got a sharp eye on the latest tools and software that can help you. Is there any particularly notable tools or models or things that you found over the last 12 months? You've been a bit of a game changer for you in, in a small or a large way. Yeah, hundred percent. So the first one that comes to mind is uh, is Bainbridge. So, um, in full disclosure, I I'm an advisor for them, so I'm I'm, I'm affiliated officially now as of like a week ago. Um, but because I freaking love their shit, like it's insane. Like, so they what they what they have is basically um, a model. It's a financial model, right? And so like, I would spend I swear to God like days, literally days, updating models and tweaking models and 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 all like there's just like. Think about like an investment banker, right? Like they work 100 hours a week. Like why is that? It's because they're in Excel for 15 hours a day, just tweaking tiny shit. Um, and so like what Bainbridge did, and like what I got so excited about was like they have a, an extremely robust, very fairly complicated, um, powerful financial model that's like just made my life a thousand times easier because it's pretty much like automatically updated. Like it's like integrated with QuickBooks, um, and they have a really great like customer success team that can kind of help you 
you know, think about your forecasts as well. And, and um, they were, they were fantastic. Um, and then like Carta, like I use for like data rooms, honestly, is like, just like so easy. Like for people who are like already on Carta, like for equity management, like they just have like a data room section. Um, other than that, like, it's really just like the Shopify apps for like all the, um, whatever kind of data you might want, like the cohort data, like there's a bunch of those like random Shopify apps. Um, and then like, excel honestly is is most of it so still um we're still a little bit underappreciated i think in the back office from a technology perspective but um i would like call out bainbridge as like the number one thing because like i actually remember like setting it up with them and being like like they they have probably saved us like three weeks maybe like i probably launched the fundraise like three weeks quicker than i would have if i had to like do everything that they did with their technology um so their their products is great um but other than that it's very ad hoc sort of like excel focused stuff i don't want to open a can of worms here right at the end but i just wanted to get your thoughts on contrib- using contribution margin as a way to measure customer acquisition cost you on that are you on that ship or not what do you uh, what do you mean so i'm gonna get slightly out of my depth here but there's an ongoing conversation about how and what should be included in <laughs> customer acquisition cost as in what do you actually write up as this is a cost that was acquired to acquire that customer and i think it it's common thread collective talk about contribution margin being the kind of golden bullet in terms of how to measure customer acquisition cost versus um ltv to cac and things like that so i was just wondering if you had any thoughts on it being a financial guru that you are yeah that is a loaded question. I would say like, I do subscribe to that notion. I think a lot of people measure LTV on a contribution margin basis, right? So like, you can either have like LTV on like a revenue basis, which is like how much revenue, how many sales is like one customer generated for me, or you can actually track LTV as contribution margin, right? So like how much variable profit have I made off of this customer? That's probably the more disciplined way to do it. um, The more granular way to do it because on a revenue basis, it's just a proxy for profit, right? You're just kind of guessing. but yeah, I mean, I, I like for me personally, and like I put in contribution margin, like I have my own like gr- like like gross margin walk down. Um, but then like for for Mad Rabbit, which is like you know today like an e-commerce business, um, any, like all digital advertising, um, as well as like the variable costs associated with that. So like if you're paying like a media agency, um, you know, ten percent of sales, five percent, or yeah, ten percent of spend, five percent of spend, um, like that technically like should be accounted for in your in your CAC. Um, I do think you can defend backing that out of CAC. And I would actually prefer to look at both because when you think about like agencies and like sort of like terminal margin profiles, um, like you're not going to use an advertising agency forever. And like if you, even if you are, like they're not going to charge you 10% of your spend forever. Um, and so like, I think like if you were to like bring a media buyer in house, like that would essentially like negate that cost component of the variable, you know, marketing cost stack. And so maybe it like shouldn't be included in, in CAC. Um, but you should at least look at both. And so like all the channel ad spend and like the agency fees kind of associated with that um, are like what I would what I would kind of like walk that down to. And then everything after that for us is really just like insurance and like salaries and like rent and stuff. So like that to me like isn't really like a, a CAC, you know, expense. It's more of like an overhead thing. You heard it from Drew. That's the definitive, definitive answer in my books. If Drew says it, that's what I'm going with. Um, when are we going to record again, i.e. when are you forecasted to raise a Series B? 
Um, that is confidential information. I cannot confirm or deny that that will happen. Fair enough. Well, I hope it does just purely so I get to learn from you again, because I always enjoy the experience. So thank you very much for coming on the show, Drew. Where can people, if they haven't already, uh, find you, contact you and follow you? Um, on Twitter, primarily, it's Drew Fallon 12, I think, right? Yeah, it's Drew Fallon 12 on Twitter is my... I've got it right here. My it's thing. Drew Fallon 12. We'll link it below in the show notes. This is the first of the second rounds of interviews with guests and uh, i think it's gone very well drew thank you very much again for your time and all the best to mad rabbit thank you so much finn thanks for getting up early this is awesome a lot of fun